As a historian of medicine, one of the things that has always puzzled me is how little memory of the 1918 influenza pandemic there is in popular culture. Worldwide, an estimated 500 million people were infected with the virus and at least 50 million people died. Only World War II killed more people in Europe than the 1918 pandemic. In the United States, an estimated 675,000 people died, rivaling, if not surpassing, the number of people killed in the Civil War. Yet, given the enormity of the illness and death it caused, there's been relatively little scholarship devoted to it and much less in the way of popular books and movies. Part of the reason for this is that it can be hard to form memories around traumatic events that disrupt the normal flow of life. This is evident in this podcast episode as the interviewees talk about the feelings of unreality as the pandemic began and the sense of things blurring together as the challenges they faced at work intensified. It can be difficult to form clear orderly memories in such disturbing situations and even more difficult when such traumatic experiences do not fit into any of the well-established narratives that constitute popular culture. The 1918 influenza pandemic in particular did not fit into a popular historical narrative of the scientific triumph over infectious disease that took shape in the late 19th century. Beginning with the discoveries of Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch in the 1860s and 70s, through the development of antibiotics in the 1930s and 40s, and life-saving antiretroviral treatments of AIDS toward the end of the 20th century, popular culture presumed that scientific medicine has steadily increased its understanding of infectious diseases and the therapeutic power to treat, if not prevent, and cure them. In that popular narrative, the seeming impotence of medical science during the 1918 pandemic seems like an outlier, a strange and horrifying throwback to another time. There's, of course, a good deal of truth to the popular narrative of medical science conquering infectious disease, but scholars in history and public health can have consistently argued that the reality is much more complicated. Infectious diseases involve more than microorganisms and the methods we develop to study and control them. Epidemics involve the entire social, economic, and political organization of society, and they will take advantage of every existing fissure and stress point. The power of the popular narrative of our triumph over infectious disease led much of the general public and many policymakers to be complacent about the threat infectious diseases continue to pose and helped to explain why we have been so ill-prepared to face the challenge of this pandemic. Interest in the great flu of 1918 and other pandemics in history has, unsurprisingly, exploded in the context of COVID-19. But when we finally get control over this pandemic with a likely vaccine next year, there may be a tendency to fit it back into the tidy narrative of inevitable medical triumph. There will be a danger of becoming complacent again. This Dragons Remember podcast will be an important resource for resisting complacency. Gathering these accounts of Drexel alumni working on the front lines of healthcare during the COVID pandemic is an important contribution to developing a richer perspective that acknowledges the complexities and continued danger of infectious disease. These particular interviews will remind us of how chaotic and uncertain the arrival and spread of COVID-19 was for those working in the healthcare system. It will also remind us of the resilience and strength that healthcare providers and society are capable of marshalling in times of crisis. These are important perspectives that we will need not just as we continue to struggle with COVID, 
but as we prepare for pandemics that will inevitably arrive in the future. Let's shift to discuss your experience of the pandemic and how it's affected both your life and your work. So to start, uh, we'd like to ask you when you first became aware of the virus and what was your immediate response? You know, I think I remember those first days of it feeling like, I don't know, I just remember that ominous feeling um, occurring and I think the first experience I had with it was one of the um, nurse anesthetists was sent home. Um, And this was before there were really, I think it was like the first couple cases in Pennsylvania had shown. And one of the nurse anesthetists was sent home because they weren't feeling well. And I think it was that they had been in contact with somebody who had been in contact with somebody who had tested positive. And you know, I was in that room that day and I was just like, what, you know, like, where do we, where are we going from here? What's our, what's our protocols? And, um, you know, I, I think everybody just wasn't quite at that point yet where it was like, oh man, this, this is hitting now, like this is happening and this is occurring. And I think on a, like a larger hospital wide scale, you know, obviously cases were, occurring overseas and, you know, that it was present in the U.S. So I think that they were prepared for it um, in a more superficial sense. But when it comes down to like to that day, I just remember it feeling kind of like we didn't really know what was going on. We didn't really know the next step. Um, And so that's, I think, when it really felt real to me and like, okay, this is about to be a thing. You know, this is gonna, this is not the first time, or I'm sorry, the last time that it's gonna happen. Um, This is gonna be, this is gonna be something bigger than that. And I think that's just that, that what I was saying earlier is like that ominous feeling coming over me of, wow, this is gonna be a hard time ahead. And you don't really know what it looks like. Uh, You don't really know exactly the specifics of it. But um, yeah, I think it was just very much like an introspection into that um, kind of like looking into the future of what is this all going to, how is this all, how are the pieces going to lay? To use a tedious dichotomy here, uh, from what I heard you had both an academic and a personal response to the virus. And it was when you became aware of it personally that the seriousness of the situation hit. Would you say that's about right? Yeah, yeah. I I think that, you know, as I'm sure many people have felt is it doesn't feel real until you become into a circumstance with it. Um, And I think that's why in maybe some cases, people still kind of are able to disattach from it a little bit more. Um, you know, and, and, I, and I can understand that sense, but then when you do feel uh, that, it's, that it is a real thing, I think it, it does shift your perspective a little bit. Um, you know, as a nurse, I think we become, we're so hyper aware of, of a lot of things. I mean, I think how I first dealt with it to now looks different. Um, and with that being said, you know, obviously a lot of things have come out as far as what this disease looks like and how it's transferred. And 
Um, but when you're first kind of in that unknown, it's like I go into the super mode of like, yeah, I'm, you know, changing out my clothes the moment I get in the door and I'm getting in the shower and, um, you know, everything I touch, I sanitize and, you know, you're, but you're going to the extreme almost because you're so unsure of what the unknown is that it's kind of your way of controlling it um, or trying to contain it in your own way. That's awesome. And, you know, I'm sure you're still relatively new to the field and this is something nobody's ever seen before. So what has your experience been with COVID-19? When did you first encounter it? And how many cases did you see then compared to how many you're seeing now? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I first heard of it the same way all of us did on the news and just hearing, oh, there's this new virus um, coming out of Wuhan in China. And it seems to be different than anything we've seen before. And I was like everybody else. I disregarded it. You know, I rem- I vaguely remember people talking about SARS and all these, you know, it just seems like something people are always talking about. I didn't take, I didn't even think about it. Um, didn't take it really seriously at that time. And then um, I started noticing that it was getting to Europe and just how um, infective this disease was, it, how good it was at spreading itself around the world. And that's when I started to realize like, oh, actually we might be in trouble. And then, you know, a few cases started popping up in the U.S. Little did I know at that time, I'm, I think now I'm pretty certain that it was already probably quite rampant in New York City. Um, but at the time, it felt like, oh, now there's a case in Westchester. It just slowly was inching towards me. <laughs> yeah. And um, and then we, and then I would say in February, um, which was before anything shut down in any way, and I, I still think most of the country wasn't taking it too seriously. I started to see some cases popping up, and they felt like, you know, we're seeing cases that looked like a flu, but when we would do a flu test, it was negative. You know? And we were like, what is going on with these people? You know, looking back, obviously, it's pretty clear that that was COVID at that time. Um, And then in March, you know, it was becoming more and more prevalent. And through March and April, it just became the only disease that I saw. You know, it was like every single person had COVID. Uh, Not that everybody was dying, but some people had it and they just had a fever. Some people had it, didn't have any symptoms. Some people had it and they were really sick. So that went on for a while where it was just constant COVID. And then just as quick as it kind of came, it it seemed to disappear quickly too. Um, Once the city locked down and once people started getting really paranoid in the city, you know, we had the um, freezer trucks outside of the hospital and it was just a, a visual reminder to everyone, this is real. I think people really started to take it seriously in the city and within, you know, two, three weeks of that, probably three, maybe three, four weeks, uh, we started to see the cases drop off. And now, since then, we've been seeing, um, here we still test a lot of people and we still have a lot of positive tests, but the really, really sick people we're not seeing to the same degree we were. It's kind of like a steady stream versus what felt like a tidal wave that hit us. Oh, I'm sure. So you you touched on a few things there I want to get back to. Uh, The first being... You know, New York City for a while was the epicenter of the virus um, in the United States, uh, particularly. So, what was it like, not only working in a hospital there, but also living there? Yeah, it was scary. Um, you know, none of us, 
you know, I didn't know what to do. None of us really knew how to manage this. And it was really scary to kind of go to work and know that there's this invisible virus around you and it's kind of floating all around you. And you're not sure exactly how to protect yourself. Like, you know, should, should we, we, should we be wearing bunny suits? Should be, is it okay to just wear scrubs? Um, should I be wearing like a, a huge mask or do I just need a surgical mask? You know, all these questions. And so, you know, it's like going to work, you're kind of like, you're just paranoid to touch anything, do anything. When you go in a room to see a patient, you know, it's almost less stressful when the patients are clearly, obviously COVID, but it was really stressful to know that even just regular patients that we were seeing that came in for something else, we would test them and they would be positive. So it's like everywhere it was around us. So that was stressful at work. And then you come home and, you know, everybody's, paranoid about it everyone's thinking about it i think someone coined a term doom scrolling where you're just on your phone reading all these articles and just like having nightmares about it you know i would come home and take off all my clothes outside of my apartment and then basically just run into my shower put all my clothes into like a a trash bag you know and you just couldn't escape it you know i'm sure everyone kind of felt this way but it was like whether you're at work whether you're at home um, you can't see friends. I couldn't see family. And this is all you're thinking about. So it was rough. Um, and New York really shut down. Like, you know, I felt like I was in a sci-fi movie, you know. You mentioned that the guidances were changing nearly every day. Could you comment on how this affected the mood within the hospital? It's hard. You know, it's it's hard to, I can only be one observer. Um, so maybe somebody would observe it differently, I guess. It seems like a lot of frustration, um, a lot of trying to figure it out, trying to understand it. Um, you know, it's it's just information overload and you're trying to keep up with it. And a lot of it doesn't make sense. I think some people can react in anger. Some people react in uh, just trying to, you know, do what is right. Um, it was a lot. I mean, it was, uh, tensions were high. Um, and also trying to do your job at the same time and be helpful. And, you know, I think that all of that is encompassed in the hospital. But yeah, I think with the constant changes in practice, it's, it's just hard to keep up. It's hard to keep up with, you know, it's like an email every day. This is what we're doing now. This is what we're doing now. And we still, I mean, that still happens um, as this continues to evolve. Um, You know, I think we have a better gist of what's going on now. And, you know, the OR has started. We've thankfully cases have started back up and I'm, you know, I think most people in the OR are back in their normal roles. Um, so it feels like, okay, my task of what I'm doing is more clear. Um, whereas before it, it didn't feel as clear. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, there's, there is a website on Jefferson that keeps all of their policies and updates, you know, they try to condense it so you can find those things. Um, and one thing that the CNO of Jefferson does that I really commend him on is um, he 
started doing Zoom meetings. So we usually do like, in the OR, we usually have a group meeting with all the OR um, nurses and techs and nursing assistants. Um, and it kind of, you know, on a larger scale for the hospital, Jeff did that on Wednesday mornings. Um, or I'm sorry, they were like spread out. He would do them four times a day. So it would be just information. Um, and he would answer every single question that was, that was asked of him. And I just thought, wow, that's a really, I commend him on answering every single question a nurse had. Um, you know, he really tried to help make sense of it. Um, and that was something I hadn't really, I, I don't know. I think it just brought together all the nursing staff in the hospital um, and helped clarify some of the, some of the policies and procedures. And I think an email is, it's hard to kind of grasp what that is, but when you're having human interaction or somebody who's kind of talking or you're interacting with them, it makes it a little bit easier to kind of say, okay, I get, I get it now. Drexel, we shut down on the 13th of March. Um, and that day I, I went home um, to Harrisburg and then I drove back to New York to pick up my brother. And I remember being there then. And then a few weeks later and it was, it was, in, it took crazy. It was a ghost town. Um, but, you yeah. know, getting, getting back to more Mount Sinai, Early on in March and April, we heard a lot about a shortage of medical equipment that we need, uh, PPE, ventilators, things like that. Did you ever come into, did you ever an interaction where you didn't have enough beds, ventilators, anything like that? And were you always able to stay safe yourself with PPE? The PPE situation was rough in the beginning, for sure. Um, at first, it was like, we're not clear on what is the appropriate policy. So we got a lot of mixed messages. I remember clearly in, this must have been late February, maybe early March, we had a team of administrators coming down yelling at us for wearing masks. They said, you shouldn't be wearing a mask unless you're in the room with a COVID patient, you're scaring patients, they're, they're not gonna wanna come in if they see you guys walking around in masks. And we all thought, well, that's kind of a little bit weird. And then, then it totally flipped to like, you need to be wearing an N95 respirator and a surgical mask on top of it. So every day you'd come into work, it would be a different message. And it's that lack of um, consistency that can be very uh, scary. You know what I mean? Like you feel like you're a foot soldier, but you're like, who's telling, like, who knows what's going on? Who can guide me? Um, in the beginning, we had one respirator that we were using for the week. And they gave us these little brown paper lunch bags. And so we take off the respirator, put it in the lunch bag if we want to take, if we want to drink some water or whatever, and put it back on. And we have to keep this for a week, and we change out the surgical mask on top. We had um, one face shield per week also that we had to clean. So it was rough because you know trying to clean this plastic face shield, and we're running out of alcohol wipes, we're running out of peroxide wipes. You use bleach, and then all of a sudden the face shield gets all white with residue and now you can't see when you're trying to do a procedure you know you're putting it's like how clean is a respirator if the, you're saying that the front of it is dirty but the inside of it is clean and i just put it in a brown paper bag and ruffle it around and now put it back on your face you know so it was definitely it was definitely uh rough at sinai luckily they are you know they're a pretty wealthy 
you're saying they were able to pull strings. I think they got Warren Buffett to donate some planes that could go fly somewhere and personally bring PPE back. So we got out of the PPE crunch a little quicker than some of the other New York City hospitals. Um, but I mean, I'll never forget that period where we didn't have enough and we were basically, uh, you know, people were scared for their lives and the lives of their loved ones. A lot of our physicians that were my mentors all through residency that I really look up to and go to still to this day for guidance, you know, a bit older, um, when this happened, they were kind of forced to retire, you know? Yeah. It's not safe for them to be in the department. So it was a very scary time. As the virus initially spread throughout the Northeast, were there any noticeable changes in hospital practice on an institutional level? Was there any noticeable change in hospital atmosphere? Definitely, yeah. Um, you know, the timeline of when it all happened and how long, like that all, honestly, it, it kind of feels like a blur at this point. Um, but I think as cases started increasing and as... Like I remember as the COVID testing sites started popping up, um, cases definitely declined in the OR. Um, it was, you know, Pennsylvania, the government of Pennsylvania essentially, you know, recommended and the CDC recommended that all, you know, cases kind of cease unless they're really necessary. So, you know, I feel very fortunate at Jefferson. They really made it a priority um, to kind of continue using us somehow. Um, you know, I heard like as going through this and listening to the news, you hear of some hospitals who furloughed staff or um, had to lay off. And, you know, thankfully we didn't experience that um, at Jefferson. I think we just kind of filled different positions. So, you know, as cases were still going on, it was probably, I mean, I don't know, 15 to 20% capacity of what we normally run. Um, and the hospital itself, I mean, as we were kind of preparing for increases, you know, there was the, t the time period just before that and the hospital was like eerily quiet. Like I just remember they stopped visitors from coming in, they closed off different entrances into the hospital. So there was pretty much like only two entrance points in the main hospital, whereas you had several before um, and you were, you know, required to put on a mask going into the hospital. Um, if you were a visitor, uh, you would have to answer questions. Um, and all of that changed in that time frame. I mean, every day there was like new alerts, new information coming out and it's just like a whirlwind of information overload um but as you know as we kind of went through it in the operating room i mean as i mentioned we kind of did questionnaires at the at the entrances um we were sent to sometimes assist with proning patients in the icus patients who were intubated um it's essentially putting them on their stomach. Um, it has shown to help increase their oxygen levels and um, they have just seen better outcomes. Um, so, you know, we were sent out to the ICU. They would have schedules for some of these patients to prone in the morning and the afternoon. Um, so we would help with that sometimes. Um, 
you know, just doing different projects. Um, you know, I think I was pulled one day to uh, <clears throat> L&D, the labor and delivery floor. They moved some of their, uh, their like emergency C-sections, C does not occur where ROR was, but they moved it over there temporarily during all of this. And so they needed all their supplies, though, put into ROR's. And so they had to build this, you know, supply station to have in the room. Um, so I helped with that. So it was a lot of odd and end jobs, but to be honest, it was also so much downtime. It was so much sitting sometimes and just trying to find something to do. It felt like the slowest days when you're used to going, you know, full speed ahead. And this all of a sudden you're stopped. Like there's not a lot happening <laughs> in your realm. Um, so it was a challenge, you know, I think I, I did a lot of um, CEUs, like continuing education, just trying to keep busy and your mind off of what's totally occurring in some way. Um, you know, I think you can drive yourself a little crazy when you're sitting there thinking about it constantly. So you mentioned that OR practice has returned to a state of normalcy. Uh, have there been any changes made in response to COVID-19 that have been made permanent? So in the OR, when they, when we started getting cases back up and running, um, well, first let me say the hospital still requires anybody to wear just a, a certain, you know, a regular mask in the hospital. Um, that's a given. You have to, you know, hand sanitize, put a mask on. So that still stands. Um, they have reopened some of the entrances. So that's something a little bit newer of feeling like you're getting back to some normalcy, which it seems like such a silly uh, thing to say, but I guess it's just like one of those small nuances that you're like, okay, okay, we're, we're kind of going in the right direction. <laughs> um, and as far as in the OR itself, so our practice now is that every patient who's scheduled to come in for a case, they have to have a COVID test that's negative within three days. Um, now, of course, you know, we're, we're a trauma level hospital. Um, so if we have what's called an EROR, so that's any kind of trauma case that comes in, um, you know, unfortunately, you're not, you don't have time to wait for that uh, COVID test to come back. There are rapid tests um, that, you know, can come back quickly. But part of all of that has been, you know, the process of all this is uh, how accurate are they? <laughs> um, so, you know, I think these, there are certain tests that have shown greater accuracy than others. And so as of today, yes, our policy is three days. They have, every patient has to be negative. Um, that's now something that, like I was mentioning, you know, before a patient rolls back into the OR, that's something that I'm checking as, as an OR nurse. I mean, we're kind of like the last check for a lot of things. Um, and that is kind of one of them um, that we make sure has been done. Um, everybody wears an N95 mask now. It doesn't, even if patients test positive or test negative, um, we still, everybody is supposed to be wearing an N95 mask. Um, so that's been a huge change of practice. Um, you know, wearing eye protection, which 
if you're at the field, you are wearing eye protection anyway, but um, even as like a circulating nurse who's maybe away from the field a little bit, but still in the room, um, you know, it is recommended that they, that a that some form of eye protection is on. And um, I think in general, you just see a lot more people becoming a little bit more aware, wiping things down more, um, those type of things. So you mentioned that there could be cases where you're uncertain with regards to the patient's COVID status. Does this uncertainty affect you when you go into these rooms? Do you treat them like any other patient? I think it's assessing the situation. Um, I think it's individual for everybody. Um, and, you know, I would say that for the most part, uh, I mean, it's if I don't need to be present in a COVID positive room, so so they, again, like we have a designated COVID room. So like if, if a, let's say if it's not a trauma patient who is still COVID positive, we have a designated room in the OR and really, it's just that staff. Um, so I would not feel inclined to go to a room like that because it's more controlled. It's a more controlled situation. And also there's a staff. So there's one person who's in the room um, as far as a nurse and a tech. And then there's a nurse sitting outside the room. Um, and, you know, there's walkie-talkies being used. You're trying to limit the amount of door being open and closed. So it's much more of a controlled situation. So, no, I would not go into a room like that. But in a trauma case, if I'm, you know, let's say my finished case, my, my uh, room that I was assigned to that day was done with their cases, and let's say a trauma case occurs and the trauma pager goes off, you know, I go down and assess the situation. Do they think that they might need some help? Could I stand outside the room and still help them? You know, there's, it's just assessing what the situation is, I think. Um, I don't think it stops me per se of if it's, you know, if it's a very chaotic case, then yes, I'm gonna go in and help because that's just part of your job and what you do. <laughs> well, medically, I feel like Everything we learned, we learned the hard way and by trying everything and having no idea what we're doing and getting things wrong and then learning from our mistakes, mm -hmm. to be honest. You know, and in medicine, as you can imagine, there's a lot of like, you learn from the textbook, you learn from guidelines and you learn from people who have been doing this for a long time. And when it came to COVID, we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants. Um, when we started seeing our first cases, we were literally getting WhatsApp text messages from doctors in Washington state or, or ICU doctors in Italy saying, this is what we're seeing. Uh, you guys should try this or try that. And we're messaging people back and forth and literally like creating um, like a book chapter ba basically in real time. On a, um, and so in the beginning we thought, you know, I feel like we made a lot of mistakes. Like we thought, okay, this is a pneumonia and it progresses to something called ARDS, which is something we had heard about before. It's like adult res acute respiratory stress syndrome. And uh, so we thought, all right, we should put people on ventilators early and intubate them. That felt like the right thing to do. Now we've learned that, I think, I think we've learned, or at least I think that we, it's better to keep people off of ventilators as long as you can um, and only put them on the ventilator when you really need to. 
is we learned that the disease is more than just a lung disease. There's actually issues going on in the blood and more, more full body issues that complicate the picture a little bit. So you can't just attack it by just really um, focusing on the lung. So now we have, you know, obviously we don't have a vaccine yet. We don't have a like silver bullet drug that works, but I think we've developed a bunch of little tricks that are helping. And now when we're dealing with COVID patients, like we have a bunch of tricks that really do help. Something as simple as lay them on their belly, for example. I mean, who would have thought, but right? You put the same person, you, they're on their back, they don't do so well. You put them on their belly and all of a sudden they have a fighting chance. So that's something small that we do. We use something called high flow nasal cannula, which is instead of putting them on a ventilator where you have to basically put them in a medically induced coma so that they have this tube sticking out of their throat and all this pressured air pushing in and out, which is obviously good when you need it, but it, it is a, it's a drastic intervention. So something we do instead is put these big tubes in their nose and just pump oxygen into the tubes in their nose. They can stay awake. They can move around. That's working a lot better. We learned that there's definitely some issues with clotting in the blood that this virus induces. So by giving medicines that thin the blood, it seems to be helping. Um, and then remdesivir seems to be helping slightly. So that's good that we now know that, you know. So those are some of the medical, like, little tricks that we're using. Um, and I do think back to some of those early cases, and I think, like, oh, maybe if I had known this, I could have done a better job. That sounds incredibly scary. I mean, all we hear now is wear your mask, wear your mask, wear your mask. So the fact that, you know, doctors, frontline workers were hearing, you don't have to wear a mask is just... It's just incredible to me. It blows my mind. So I guess a couple questions now. Did you ever think about stopping work or, you know, changing careers or halting going in as a doctor? Or did you always think this is what you had to do? When COVID happened? Yeah, during COVID. No, I mean, I was scared. Um, and I guess I didn't really think about quitting, mostly because I... <laughs> I don't know how I could explain that to my coworkers. You know, it's like we're all, we all kind of had this um, herd mentality or like bunker mentality almost like this war, you know, this tidal wave is coming and we all got to look out for each other. And we're all picking, you know, when some of our older attendings had to retire, we all had to pick up extra shifts and stuff like that. So, um, no, I mean, it, you know, one of the attendings said something like, man, if this was Ebola, I would quit. But, <laughs> but this is like, so he, we were making, we would make a lot of jokes like that. But no, I, I don't think I seriously thought about quitting. Was I scared? Did I not want to go in? Sure. Um, I think March 15th or something around that time, I actually had a, a vacation. No, this was the end of March. I had vacation. I was going to go to the Dominican Republic. Obviously, that got all ruined. And I felt bad about taking those days off because I was like, oh, I feel like I'm just abandoning, you know, the truth kind of thing. Um, so I did take a few of those days off. I think I may have picked up a shift or two, but it, it was actually nice to take those days off to just kind of settle, recuperate a little bit, and then kind of jump back in the fight. So to extend the questioning beyond the walls of the hospital, would you mind commenting on how the virus has affected your daily routine? Have you experienced difficulties balancing work and personal commitments? Uh, perhaps has the virus changed your perspective of what daily life entails? 
Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a lot more um, alone time, which I'm okay. You know, I, I always say I'm an introvert. <laughs> I, was, I can deal with this. But even introverts have, you know, had their their hard times during this. Um, you know, I would say things that it has affected. Um, you know, I go running a lot. Uh, I do wear a mask when I run. I think that's something that has changed. Um, you know, I think, does it stop me from going out to do that? No. Um, but I also think it's just made me kind of get outside. You know, I still, to me, being cramped up in my apartment all day is not is not good for my mental health. So to me, getting outside as much as possible is something that is necessary. Um, so I still, you know, it's, I think going out for walks or I still, you know, coffee shops are open now. I go pick up a cup of coffee. I um, go for a run. Um, I am, <laughs> I have tried to date. I will say, I think that's been, uh, for me, uh, a big hold because it's, that just seems like a whole nother thing in itself. <laughs> um, I think that's a, it's a really interesting actually to look at. Um, but you know, I, and I had gone on some dates where I, you know, I would say, I would tell them like, Hey, just a heads up, I'm going to wear a mask. Um, but it's kind of like having some of those conversations ahead of time um, or doing like Zoom dates where it seems so strange and it's like, wow, could this be any more awkward meeting somebody this way? But, you know, I think I've had good and bad with both. Um, but again, I think it's just like an overwhelming experience in itself that I've now to, at this day where I've just kind of stepped back from it and just been like, I just need to kind of reassess, you know, um, what this looks like. And um, I think it's, you know, thankfully my sister is in the medical profession as well. Um, she's an OBGYN and, you know, her and her family, I, I feel like we've been able to get together and, um, you know, have moments where we can, you know, enjoy dinner together, doing things um, together. So I think she's been a huge person in my life that through this that I have really um, valued and, you know, just talking on the phone more. I think it's really, I've connected with some people that I haven't, you know, in a while and um, also let go of some people that I, you know, I think it just, it all, we're all shifting our thoughts and our feelings. Um, and I think we're still in the midst of a lot of that. It sounds like you're trying to maintain a semblance of daily life with the necessary adjustments to preserve a sense of normalcy. Uh, would you say this is accurate? Uh, if so, have you found this sense of normalcy to be important? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think connecting with some sense of normalcy is necessary. Um, yeah, and connecting with the things that are meaningful to me. I mean, like I said, my sister, I that's, you know, and my, my nieces, I think those are a sense of comfort, um, for sure. Um, coffee is a comfort, <laughs> for sure. Um, but I also think it's a, a time of, of evolution, of, of having space to kind of create something that's new. And I think that I really taken that, you know, it's also doing things the same, but differently. Like I work out at home now 
and and I've actually really been enjoying it um, where it makes me think like, wow, I spend like a hundred dollars on a gym membership yet. I, I have this capacity to do it at home and actually enjoy it. And I would say that was a process of actually enjoying it and getting in the rhythm of doing it. But now I'm like, yeah, I think I found it. Um, and you know, I'm using this time to read more, to research more, to think about, what I want for, you know, my future. And I will say like, I think that I've, I've daydreamed a lot more during this and I've dreamed a lot more during this time um, and questioned a lot more. And I don't see those as bad things. I see those as, again, this evolution of, of self, but also of our world. And I, that's where I say, like, I, th I think shifts are happening on a bigger level and it's just interesting to observe all of that. <laughs> and I do think back to some of those early cases and I think like, oh, maybe if I had known this, I could have done a better job. That's the kind of, those are the kind of thoughts that uh, disturb me. So yeah, I don't know. I think I keep me up at night sometimes thinking like, oh, maybe I could have done this different. Maybe I could have done that different. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so in, early on there, you talked about, you know, getting WhatsApp messages from different doctors across the, the world, really. Was there a lot of collaboration between, you know, not just Mount Sinai and other hospitals in the city, but hospitals around the world? Was that something common? Very common, yeah. The collaboration that we saw between ER doctors and ICU doctors and just really people who were experiencing this, I've never seen anything like that before. You know, if you think about the normal way we share insights or information in medicine, it's like, I do a study, so I have to apply to the IRB. That takes a couple months. Then I do this study. That could take a year. And then I write up the study. That takes a couple months. And then the journal comes back and forth with editorial comments, another six months. So, you know, two, three years down the road, you might publish a paper and then someone might read this paper or they might fall asleep while trying to read this paper, you know, and that's how we learn from each other. It's a very slow, rigorous, methodical process. And in this when it came to this, it was like all that was out the window. You know, we're on, like, people are posting YouTube videos. Uh, doctors are coming home from a shift and saying, like, okay, this is what I saw. Here's a picture of a patient I saw. Look what I did. And then I'm looking at this picture of the patient and saying, wow, that's really incredible. Like, I actually saw something like that, too. Let me try this. And, and we're going back and forth. Um, so it was great because it, I think we learned a lot quicker than we would have doing it the traditional way. Obviously, the downside, though, is that a lot of the stuff we went down a lot of blind alleys because it's like, I tried this and oh, let me try that. And then you it turns out everything you thought was just wrong about that. Now you have to double back and go a different direction. Um, and I think the downside of that is that it can kind of confuse patients or the general public. It can confuse them. Like at first we were giving hydroxychloroquine. Now we're not giving hydroxychloroquine. And people are like, do you guys even know what you're doing? And you know, it kind of makes you want to say to patients like, no, we, we don't know what we're doing. Like we're figuring it out just like you guys are. So like, you know, so yeah, I don't know, pros and cons of learning medicine on WhatsApp. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, we've talked about COVID so far and it's a terrible disease and everything's done is terrible, but have you seen anything uplifting, any uh, incredible, amazing, uplifting stories, um, you know, whether it be medically or just around the city? Absolutely. I mean, I, I saw people come together in a way that I've never seen before. Um, you know, 
people in New York City, I, I, as far as I can experience, they complain, they moan, they grumble about things. But I saw when it push came to shove, they all really did hunker down and do the right thing. Um, and it worked. So I felt good about that. I, I've never... No one's ever, I've never considered what I do to be like heroic or anything. You know, I'm just kind of like, all right, I, you know, I go to work and I, I don't know. And and then t- when I was seeing these pe- people clapping and applauding every day at 7 p.m., it just kind of w- was overwhelming. I, I didn't even know, I don't even know what to make of that. Um, but it just was so touching to know that people cared and appreciated what, what we were trying to do. Um, I also felt guilty because you know, I wasn't really sure if I was doing anything good for people. And a lot of times, like, I'm not helping people. Yeah, I'm, we're trying, but it's whatever we're doing is not working. So there's a lot of emotions there. Um, I also, in a, just a medical way, most people who get this disease do pretty good, you know? So it's nice when you see people who got it and you test them and you call them back with a positive result and you're nervous, you know, you're like, uh, I have to tell you some bad news. And they're like, Oh, well, you know what? I feel better already. It's fine. You know, um, something like that happened to me. Actually, I never got tested. Um, I recently Sinai was one of the first places to offer antibody testing, which tells you if you had the disease and you developed antibodies to it. So I got tested and I turned out to be positive. And then now I'm like looking back and I'm like, oh, you know what? In early March, like kind of before we even shut down, I had this weird cough. I thought I just had like some allergies. I don't know. Now I'm thinking maybe, maybe I had it then, you know? So I guess I just went on a little bit of a tangent, but yeah, I, I think I really, I've really seen how people can come together when something really bad happens. And that's given me faith in humanity. Um, I know when you look at the national political scene, it can be kind of depressing. But when you look at individual people and talk to them, um, I don't know, it can give you hope 